Investing insights with Right Property Group. Exploring trends in real estate and helping property investors gain financial security. Hey everybody, Steve Waters and Victor Kumar from Right Property Group doing something a little different today. And today we're going to be going through some of the most trending podcasts that we've done over the last three years, Vic. And of course, probably the biggest one is how we pay off the debt as time goes on, how we research markets, and of course, the science behind researching markets. And we'll throw in something we've never done before. We'll throw in some stories, perhaps of some war wounds, the good, the bad, and the ugly as time goes on. Vic, how are you? I'm good, Steve. I'm good. Let's kick it off. So Vic, the very first one that I wanted to talk about and and perhaps has trended the most is the market today. So there's a lot of rhetoric out there that's around, this is the most awesome time to buy in the last 10 or so years. And the question for you is why we think that there are some fantastic opportunities in select markets, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just, well, the cost of money is cheap, you could buy anywhere with a few fundamentals and do okay over time. Yeah, absolutely. And and I want to frame this first to say that even in today's market, you can get financially hurt if you haven't got a planned approach. And that's what investing is all about, is actually getting a planned approach to make sure that you are actually buying towards a goal, regardless of what the market is, regardless of what the interest rates are doing, regardless of what the economy is doing. Because each market, each economy, each interest rate phase actually gets you to a different strategy to be in line with the goal. And why is it really a good time to buy now? This is the time you can actually design your decade. This is the time where given the interest rates, given the market movements, given that we've, in most markets, we've come off a fairly high frenzied buyer activity. It's a great way to put it. Yeah, I know. And I guess digital media like Facebook and, and Snapchat and Twitter has got a lot to do with it because people are always sharing the wins. And I just had a thought then, Vic. I, I don't think I've ever seen you on Snapchat. Do you even have Snapchat? I do. I've got an icon on my phone. but <laughs> never that's as far as you it. use it? That's about as far as I go. Yeah, I think my uh, daughter's got far more following than I have. I will have with her Snapchat. So if you actually go to our Facebook page and, and look at our, our profiles, you'll notice that Victor's got one of those filters on (laughs) (laughs) just to make things look a little bit better but I think you raise a really good point being that there was a frenzy within the market and there's potentially going to become that frenzy again and just because if we take a market like Sydney that is perpetuating or starting to perpetuate and there's a lot of media around saying it's a great time to buy and as we've mentioned in other podcasts and other different platforms that whilst we actually also agree that Sydney could be a good time to buy it's not for everybody. No, no. And it is really important that we buy the right type of property in the right market, the right suburb, aligned to your financial fingerprint, aligned to what you've already got, aligned to what's happening in life or what is going to happen in life, whether it's a planned family progression, whether it is a planned employment progression. So we need to really take that into account and not follow the herd because what normally happens is that particularly in today's day and age of instant news, we tend to try and follow what everyone else is doing and we tend to forget the basics. We tend to ignore the fundamentals. And you'd recall, Steve, you know, when you and I started investing, everything was paper-based. Everything. Uh, it was, it was dial-up internet days. So the instant news, the instant information wasn't quite there, yet people still got financially hurt, but not as much as the potential is here today to get financially hurt. So you mentioned dial up internet and you think about it today when you're at home or in the office and the internet goes down or the picture doesn't load up in you know, one and a half seconds, yeah. you start to get a little frustrated. But you're right, everything was paper-based, mm-hmm. literally. So we have the newspaper, we'd circle the 
That's right. The ads, we'd walk the streets, go to the shop front windows, but now it's a completely different world and the information is not just available to everybody and that's good information but so is bad information mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I think as investors we need to be really aware of that. Yeah. And uh, speaking of filters, right, you need to filter this information so that uh, you know, it becomes pertinent to you. Yeah, 100%. And so if we look at the Sydney market once again and, and come back to some basics in terms of why it's not for everybody but it could be for some people, mm-hmm. one of the reasons for me is that if you're budgeting on today's numbers in terms of the cash flow and what have you and today's rental return mm. and rates go up to four and a half percent with such a skinny yield at the moment and you're already skinny going into it it could put you into a hurt uh, scenario where without you could, doubt without doubt and also becoming a potential statistic which we read every time of the cycle yeah absolutely so you know people always talk about the gfc and how uh, you know people got hurt because the interest rates are way too high if you look at the metrics right now right so our cash rate is at 0.75 as we speak today and if there was a movement of rapid interest rate rises, let's say it only went up by 2% as a cash rate, that will hurt quite a lot because obviously you will be finding that your rate from the bank is going to go correspondingly and perhaps a lot more. And so you need to actually budget for that before you actually end up buying. Otherwise, what will happen is that you're in the same boat as everyone else who has bought pretty much at the top of their capacity, not the top of the market, the top of their capacity. It's a great point. And, and you've got no one to offload it to, or if you are offloading it to someone, you are actually taking a bath because you need to offload it. So if you're at the top of your capacity, there's a good chance that there's thousands of other people Absolutely. that are at the top of theirs. So the market becomes skinny in terms of the wedge that you're trying to, or the piece of the pie that you're trying to offload into. And that's not just... The Sydney market, that could be the Melbourne market, the, it could be any the market. Perth market yeah. and, and what have you. And so while we do believe there's some really good opportunities around you need to match mm. the skill set, your skill set, you might be a tradie, yep. you might be an engineer, whatever, you might be a butcher. Mm-hmm. But it's more around the household cash flow and capital positions, but not just now, as we always talk about, it's for tomorrow That's and next right. year. And look, I'm not a fan of modelling 30, 40 years out because there's too many inconsistencies. It becomes one mm-hmm. massive assumption. Or oh, you're getting me on my soapbox, are you? It's a big soapbox <laughs> for both of us. And so I think we need to be really careful that we just have ample buffer mm. in place. And one of the questions that we get a lot is, well, how much buffer should I have? Yeah, what is the sweet spot? And that's such a hard question to answer because different everybody's different. For, different yeah. for everyone, right? So it depends on what happens in what you've got planned, what's happening in life. What's your risk tolerance in the sense that you know, the sleep at night factor. I mean, would you sleep comfortably if you had three months worth of buffer, whether it is just a shortfall or yep. whether it is actually the full mortgage repayment? Are you are you one of those people that's more comfortable if you parked away a year's worth of shortfall? That's me. So for me, I'm that mm-hmm. year person. Yeah. I, I want to have a year's worth of pre-tax shortfall mm-hmm. parked away just in case I sack myself yep. and dig holes on the side of the road <laughs> to earn money or whatever it may yeah. be. Because at the end of the day, as we've often said, the state of your wallet dictates the That's state right. of your mind. That's right. And you don't want to be backed into a corner to make some rash financial decisions because mm-hmm. you're under pressure. So now that we've established that you need some money, mm-hmm. not just now, but for the future. For the future as well. In your opinion, and we won't, yeah, we will hold you to this. What, <laughs> what, do <laughs> Why you, does this sound familiar? It's a setup. <laughs> Where do you think for, and being very average and being very general here, mm-hmm. where the market lies in terms of your general investment dollars you know is it tasmania is it perth is it the northern territory is it sydney 
Look, I think we need to be looking at it from a portfolio point of view rather than just the one property point of view. Yeah. And if you were to look at it from a, a portfolio point of view, really we want to be in the three bigger population areas, which is your Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, right? Because when you look at it from a migration point of view, both intra and inter-migration, these are the three cities that get the bulk of the migration. So therefore, as population increases, infrastructure pressure is sustained, so there's more money spent there, plus you get more job creation. I'm not saying that your South Australian, your Perth market and, and, and all of these aren't a good mix, but as a baseline, these are the three markets you need to be in to begin with. Then start thinking of where else can my dollars be spent? Can it be spent, in my case, given my circumstances? Can it be spent in the Sydney market again? Do I go back and get more exposure in Melbourne? Or should I look further afield? In fact, what you really should be looking at is true borderless investing. So you're not talking about being suburb-centric or state-centric or property type-centric, right? So you're talking about true diversification. Diversification in terms of the types of properties you hold, what strategies you can employ with the property. So one could be just a simple buy and hold, forget it, you know, buy, set it up, forget it. The other could be that as your experience increases or as you start tapping into your own skill set or the skill set of your family members mm. it could be a renovation type of property or you could progress to you know simple subdivisions or you could just take a sedate view and say you know what i'm just going to buy one two maybe three properties forget that they ever existed because i've mitigated the negative cash flow to a large degree to be affordable to myself then go on with life a good example, as you were saying that, I was trying to think of a really good example about not just being a borderless investor geographically, but also asset type. So that could be residential versus commercial. Yeah, absolutely. As a really good example, because there's a lot of noise in the media at the moment around commercial investing. Mm. Yep. In fact, the Financial Review rang us up the other day for some commentary right, around yes. commercial investing. And I think whilst on the surface with some clever marketing, commercial looks like a really good starting point for some I'd probably recommend against that. Whilst I do think there's an absolute part of the portfolio that should entertain commercial investing, mm -hmm. you need to understand the risks involved with it as well. That's true. And gone yesteryear are the days where we shouldn't touch commercial unless it's 10% net. Now people are starting to take 4 and 5% mm. net yields. You have to sit back and ask yourself, well, why would, say, a, you know, a multi-million dollar investor take on a 4 and 5% net yield commercial premises it's because that's the best they can get that's, that's where the true. market is the money is better there than sitting in the bank getting you know one percent and literally going mm -hmm. backwards so it's about often the choice at that point in time but for investors like us that are creating a residential portfolio the plug-in of a commercial every now and again is great to boost its cash flow that's right so it's an underpinning property isn't it it's, it's an underpinning, underpinning property it. but it does come with an element of mm -hmm. risk which is higher mm. than residential real estate. Now, there are some commercial investors out there and that is their 100% strategy. They do really, really mm. well, but potentially their risk profile is also a little higher than That's someone right. like yeah. ours. I think if you're doing commercial, one of the things that you must remember is that for most investors, it may not be the first property. The other thing we need to remember is that if you got it wrong in terms of cash flow, in terms of risk, in terms of making sure that it's got consistent tenancy, it hurts you from a lending perspective because if you look at it from what how the banks actually look at it, right? So regardless of your cash flow on the commercial, they will look at it as a 20-year principal and interest loan. Mm -hmm. 
regardless of what type of loan you've got and they will only take 60 most lenders will only take 60% of your rental income into account so if you've got mediocre positive cash flow from your commercial property when you throw those metrics onto it it actually reduces your borrowing capacity in real life it actually uh, your cash flow is pretty good but from a lending perspective the uh, possibility of getting a loan is quite diminished and therefore you hurt yourself in terms of being able to build a lot more properties in the mix so that's why i'm saying that uh, the commercial properties need to be an underpinning property it underpins the negative cash flow that you're holding on properties that are high growth high equity type of properties which are residential so therefore safer consistent rentals and you underpinning it with a really good cash flow commercial property because it does chew massive amounts of capital that's right yeah uh, and therefore limiting other investments mm-hmm. and of course once we as we talked about before there's that overlaying of risk that's involved with commercial properties because mm. when they're vacant they're vacant yes and they're vacant for some time because as soon as you start dropping your rents you affect immediately the value of mm. the asset unlike for the most residential and the other thing that you need to be aware of if you are entertaining commercial on a larger scale is that there is potentially your yearly audits correct from the lender to make sure that you can still afford it unlike right. residential who's just you know basically okay. set and forget for the next mm. 30 years the only thing that may change is the repayment type or, or your interest only component here yeah, correct repayment type. yeah which is always a big cliff face for a lot of investors so while we do believe there are opportunities within the australian market from a holistic point of view i think certain markets will dictate from your household budget where you should invest yep as will your risk profile and of course what your cash flow position is which then takes me to the next thing which was a hugely trending subject for us is how we actually research a market mm-hmm. because there is there's so much media rhetoric out there on you should do it this way you should do it this way you should have volumes of data and you know miles of ground truth as we like to put it but it's to each their own i think you'll find that most good advisors and good buyers agents we all drink from the same water trough so to speak we all collate and digest data like there is nothing else left on this earth like mm-hmm. oxygen we need it because that leads us to a certain direction and there's only so many data collection houses yep. um it's more the way that we interpret the data and then how we use that i believe anyway as a little bit of a compass bearing on let's start in this direction let's go north mm-hmm. and then we start to dig deeper So it could be the ground truth. Yeah, that's right. And the thing that most people when they hound in on data, we live in the information age, right? And the unfortunate thing about that is that there is too much information. So you need a real life experience. In other words, experience of investing over many property cycles to really hone down what the data is really saying because the data could say one thing but you need to take that data take it into the field and see how it actually interprets on the ground truth so that you are really correlating it against what's actually happening on the ground so i'll give you a good example right so for those that are sydney siders if you recall back just during the gfc suburb called rosemeadow where the housing commission was selling down a lot of their properties post riots and that sounds like an awesome place to invest <laughs> so far <laughs> when when you look at the data at that time suburb population was dropping the value in the area was dropping and of course it had that stigma as well right and so of course when you look at it from that viewpoint it's not a good area to invest 
But if you knew the ground truth, they were knocking down houses and creating carports in between the uh, you know three townhouses in a row, and then they were giving twenty percent discounts on the value of the property so that an owner occupier could buy that, and it had a covenant on it that only an owner occupier could buy it. Seven years, I think it was. Seven years, yeah. yeah. And so, therefore, obviously, we're displacing the current tenants from there, so therefore, a decline in population. We're knocking down one in three dwellings, so therefore, a decline in population. And also, equally importantly, there's a decline in price because we're discounting it. Correct. Yeah. But if you're just relying on just the data of a desktop, you would steer clear of this area, yet we bought by the bucket loads there because we could see the strong change in the demographics and look at the suburb today. And data will never have given you that direction. Not at all. The correct direction to mm-hmm. go into. And I've got a, an example that's actually very recent, as in the last couple of days, being that a client said, oh, do you use this particular data house or data interpretation website mm-hmm. to look at stuff and to help make decisions? And whilst we use them all, we just throw them into the pot. And there are some we, that we think are more relevant than others. And, and this particular website, which I won't name, was more about a score, yep. know, to give the property a score. And I gave them the example, and it was just a random thing. I just wanted to see for myself right there and then in front of them. And so I plugged in the suburb and this, the report or the score was that, if the score was low, that was the end result. Because from a rental point of view, saying that there's not much demand for rental accommodation in that particular suburb. Now, I know the suburb intimately because I've got a couple of houses in that suburb. Mm. And so I instantly went on to realestate.com domain at the same time and I wanted to pull up every house there was for rent. Right, so remember, this was a low scoring property in terms of demand for accommodation. And mm. in the whole suburb, there was three properties for rent. There you go. Like the data was completely mismatched. Now on the surface, some people would say, yeah, but what about this? What about that? But because I know the suburb intimately and I know what the demand is there because I've got a couple of houses and it's just around the corner, that's not a case of borderless investing, clearly. But I know what the demand is for that area. And so if I was to absolutely rely on a piece of data like that and steer me in another direction because of this score, well, I'd potentially be missing out on any future games. So how we actually do the research is once again we start with the data and it just points us in the one direction Mm -hmm. or a few directions actually perth is a great example of that and then we start to dig really deep into the ground truth because at the end of the day we want to know what's happening now not just statistically three to six to four months Mm -hmm. or to a year ago because that lags we know that data lags there's no live data as as such except maybe a an auction result or from the weekend or something like that so if we take perth as a really good example we've been looking at Perth now for a couple of years. Yep, We've done multiple recon trips over there. We've digested the data and it's pointed us in certain areas of Perth, as an example. In certain types of properties. Certain well. types of properties down to certain zoning mm-hmm. properties, down to certain square metres and certain streets. And then we start to establish ground truth. And we might have said this actually a long, long time ago on a podcast, but one of the things that we do is that we go to every local shopping centre, big yes, or small, do. Because we want to see how many people are in there. Are they spending money? Is it busy? Is the car park full? And if we take Perth, Perth as an example, we went to one major shopping centre, which was huge. It was like a city, this thing. Mm-hmm. And it was empty to the point that some of, and I'll never forget this, this is only going back, well, early this year, I think it was. One of the shopkeepers, it was a barber shop, was asleep in one of the chairs yep. because there was no business there. That's right. The coffee shop was full, but every other 
retail shop had no one in there and we mm-hmm. would start to talk to the shopkeepers and the shop owners, the car yards, the real estate offices. They were beaten. They were beaten. There was nothing happening. Yet we went to a different area on the other side. It was vibrant as. Like it, you couldn't get a park, couldn't walk because in the shopping centre because it was so full. Not that that's the reason to invest in that area, but it just shows you a digression of micro economics within yep. that precinct. Yep. And of course, the other thing that we like to do is, rather than data, once again, this is a part of our core foundation of ground truth, is we love to go to the local councils mm-hmm. and we spend days with them, talking to duty town planners, the mayor, whoever we can get our hands on so that we can get some first-hand information of where they see the local economics going, where they project it to go, what they have in the pipeline. So we refer to that as pipeline analysis. Yep. And a really good example as I shoot in a different direction is that if you're buying into an area that might have a very high demand but low supply now, is there 30,000 more mm. premises in the feasibility stage that is going to come onto the market in two or three years' time and then potentially ruin your investment after a few good short years that you're in for an two decades of nothingness. That's right. And and that's really important as well because when you initially buy a property, it takes you three, four years to recover your costs, right? If, if the market is moving in its normal cycles or if you're not helping the growth by doing a smart renovation on it. So if we know that in two, three years time, there's going to be a massive oversupply, all of a sudden you've made your property illiquid and there's no exit strategy out of it. So one of the things that we keep saying is that very easy to get into a property transaction. It's substantially harder to get out of it. Absolutely. So we like to call that as not just the that the area should be liquid, but you should be liquid mm-hmm. all the time, no matter what. Yep. And so if you've got a pipeline that's massively starting to fill, once again, because of DA approvals, therefore construction, then in two to three years' time, that locality, so I'm not talking about the state or a quarter of a city, I'm talking about that locality, mm-hmm may dramatically affect your equity position and just as importantly, your immediate cash flow position. That's right. Which then starts to put pressure on everything else around you. So the difference between data and ground truth is so, so Mm -hmm. immense yet so important. That's one of the things that we need to remember is that most of the data is reverse facing, right? So we're using reverse facing data to predict forward facing growth. Yeah. So we need to take that into perspective and correlate it with what's actually happening on the ground right now, right here. Correct. And so a lot of that might, that ground truth, which is irrelevant of data, actually might mean around relationships. That's true. So what the agents are starting to see through Mm -hmm. the ground swell of inquiry, whether it be from a selling point of view or a purchasing point of view, and a good example of that might be the election. Yeah. So the election happened and literally... Overnight. Overnight. Yeah, literally. Not even a small part of exaggeration there. Sunday morning, the amount of real estate agents that were ringing me just to inform me that their phone since six o'clock in the morning has not stopped ringing on a Sunday. Yeah. Because there was a certain segment of the market that just switched, Mm. just waiting. You could see them just hanging to see what the election result was. Whether they knew deep down inside that really the election result might have had a, had it gone the other way, might have been a bit of a handbrake for them and for the short term future, Mm. they still were waiting for that result. And then as soon as the result that we all know happened came in, they just launched yep. straight away. And some of them, potentially some buyers, launched prematurely into markets that were still recovering and still might be recovering. Mm. And some of them were just identifying value. They could see the value there. They were just waiting for potentially the right time and the election result for them was the right time. Then, of course, we had a couple of interest rate reductions after that. 
and now we have the market that we have today in That's certain right. areas which is starting to perpetuate. So now that we've identified why we think some areas are great opportunities, mm-hmm. not all areas but some areas, we've talked a little bit about how we identify areas through data and ground research. How do we pay off the debt? Because at the end of the yeah. day, it's all great to control a portfolio of properties but if you go into retirement or you transition into retirement at 90% loan-to-value ratio mm-hmm. and a massive shortfall or cash flow shortfall, well, you really haven't accomplished anything. That's right. That's right. And I'm glad you brought that up because no one seems to be talking about what happens at that point in time, right? So everyone's talking about you have to buy a property, you have to buy a property, buy multiples, buy one, depending on, on um, their viewpoint, or buy you know high-end, buy low, uh, you know the, the cash flow positive properties, buy regional. No one talks about paying it off. And the reality of it is that if you wanted true independence, if you wanted true fruits of your labor, you need to retire the debt so that you're immune from what the economy is doing. You're immune from what the interest rates are doing from the bank's perspective. And certainly you mentioned that if you're going to retirement at 90% debt, right? That can actually happen because property markets plunge, right? So if you look at the Sydney market, went back by about 30% in some areas. And if we were continually buying and didn't have an endpoint, in other words, the acquisition phase has not stopped, you will transition into retirement, whatever age that looks like to you, and you'll find that you've got massive debt hanging over, over you. The old adage of, you know, hold the debt long term, the equity will grow substantially, so your debt will be minuscule. I don't subscribe to that because at the end of the day, the only way you can spend your equity is either by taking a loan against it or selling the property. So really, whilst the equity is your wealth base and it's generational in nature, for you to, to, to actually reap the fruits of your labor, you need to be targeting the cash flow that property portfolio will release as well. I'm glad you said that because I was going to, but you can steal my, <laughs> steal my thunder. It's actually what we're experiencing today. If you look at the general market now, the reason that supply is so tight is because people don't have to sell because of the cost of money is Correct. so cheap. And just because you mentioned the city market, it could be the Melbourne market as well, that even the Perth market, because if people have seen a reduction or a contraction in the value of their properties over the last two years, let's just randomly throwing a number out there by anywhere between five to 30%. And yes, we have seen 30% contraction in value throughout some areas. And yet the ability for them to be able to hold on to their property because interest rates are so low mm. is what we have today as a supplied market. There's not the pressure for them to be able to or need to sell. So they're seeing prices start to rise again. There's no hip pocket hurt and the necessity to sell. So they're just hanging. They're yep. just waiting until prices start to perpetuate, which they are. And it's, you know, it might be a bit of a vicious circle, if you will, be, or self-perpetuating because people aren't selling because they don't have to, but people want to buy because they've heard about mm-hmm. it. And so that wheel spins and the prices will incrementally create. You brought up Perth, right? So if you look at the current data as we stand here in 2019, the current data is that the prices in Perth have dropped back to what it was 15 years ago. So if you were 40 when you started investing, you've come fairly close to retirement and your property value has dropped back to what you bought it at. And if you haven't worked on that retirement... You're in all sorts of grief now. And there it is. That's exactly where it is. There's Mm -hmm. that pinch point, if you will, because just going on from Perth as well, whilst there's some recovery in the market, be it 
minuscule, mm. like a couple of percentile. That doesn't mean generally. And if you're one of those investors 15 years ago that chased the mining dollar in a one-trick pony town, then by paying a larger price with the promise of a higher cash flow and you don't actually have that for the last five years, 10 years, well, you've probably really hurt. So if we play that out a different direction, though, if you're a, a Perth investor, and we're not singling out Perth, but probably because it's been lacklustre over the last 15 mm-hmm. years or whatever it was, 10 years, if you, you're just really bloody lucky that the interest rates are so low because if there was a because the rents have dropped as well right? yeah significant so if rates were at five and a half six and a half percent we would see blood on the streets within perth i remember when we were over there earlier this year mm. when we were just doing our you know ad lib driving around through different suburbs wherever we just went just to see what the tempo of the neighborhoods were that there were some suburbs that we went through not very far from the you know, the perth precinct where it was almost like the whole suburb was vacant yeah the, yep. the grass was halfway up the windows. Mm. Not just one house in a suburb. We're talking 30, 40, 50 houses, streets worth. And they weren't housing commission. They weren't government housing. These are people that had just said, you know, enough's enough. Mm. You know, banks come get me because I can't rent it. Yeah, I'm not going to look after it. So imagine if rates were 6%. Mm. It'd be, there'd be so much more hurt. But that would be that'd be across the whole country as well because I believe there are certain pockets within Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane... Adelaide and the like, or throughout everywhere, Northern Territory included, that it's just because of the rates that we haven't seen. Yeah. So sometimes, so let's take that example, right? So someone's bought in in an area that's gone backwards substantially. Now, provided you've still got capital, provided you've still got the ability to borrow and hold another property, you could underpin that negative equity by buying a property where you're doing a major renovation. And by major renovation, I'm still talking cosmetic renovation and boosting up the equity on a different property so that as an overall portfolio, you are at, at neutral equity rather than going backwards significantly. So you're sort of mitigating a risk by pairing it with another property to boost up the equity of the portfolio. Yep. So you need to look at it from a portfolio base rather than individual properties. Yep, so pigeon pairing, mm-hmm. always altering and looking after the bottom line yep. at the end of the day. So let's just come back to how we pay off the debt because you said something earlier on about yeah, just waiting for properties to grow and keeping the debt at the same level because eventually things will always go up and the rent will go up yep. and then all income will overtake all expenses. Mm. Now, the problem with a lot of that model, in my opinion anyway, is that you are praying. Absolutely, you are. It's on 40, your knees. Yeah, that's a 40-year strategy and you're hoping nothing disastrous happens along the way. And that's just on the capital side. So if you look at the cash flow side, because there is some strategies out there which we don't subscribe to being that just keep the debt where it is because in year four or five or six the rents will go up enough to cover all Mm -hmm. all expenses and that's not how it works you can't model for a rent and a period of time to take over all expenses shall i bring the soapbox out now no i'm on my high horse (laughs) it's actually it's actually a bigger one because yeah, the interest rate, your expense is not static. It's, mm. it's, it's always moving. It's fluctuating up and down. And your rents do not go up by 4% a year or 5% a year or 2% a year. It'll go up, it'll go down, it'll go sideways depending on what the supply and demand and the metrics of the area are. So we need a way that we actually reduce the debt. Mm-hmm. Now, some might say in today's environment because they've got an established portfolio, it's a great time to take advantage of really low rates and just smash down debt in a yep. P&I scenario. Yeah. Or they might have an offset facility which they keep pouring into and that's a great vehicle, tool to use if you're extremely disciplined with your money and that you don't keep reaching back into mm-hmm. it. Well, it's another form of liquidity as we, as we talk yeah. about. 
But there needs to be a strategy in place where you are not just hoping and waiting for eons mm-hmm. before you can transition into retirement and sell a couple or sell the lot so that you have this bucket load of money at retirement or, or whatever it looks like for you. So there needs to be a strategy somewhere where you start to pay down debt other than P&I. That's right. And you need to be start looking at it from a decade point of view, the, the, hence the design a decade. And one of the things that really irks me is that a lot of people do modeling, but they're using linear modeling, right? Yeah. So growth is never linear. Growth happens in peaks and troughs. And there is no software out there that can forward project it. We can certainly look at it from a reverse facing to say this is what it has done. And therefore, that's the average that'll happen over the next couple of years. But it's never 100% accurate. Because your income is not linear. Either. Either, is it? Mm-hmm. Really? And nor is life's events. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, throw four kids into the equation that you didn't plan for, <laughs> and suddenly things get, things get very expensive. You've got to get a people mover. So I think, once again, coming back to designing the strategy or implementing a strategy at the, somewhere along the journey to start eradicating debt, and that's to each their own. You know, some people might take out go down the development route, building mm-hmm. you know, 30 level walk-ups. Some may be controlling certain zoned properties that they can take advantage of in 20 years' time because someone will pay them too much money mm-hmm. because they don't want to develop. That's a tick yep. as a part of the Absolutely. strategy. Or it might be by because you're suitably skilled and you've got enough experience now because you're quite sophisticated over time that you start to buy and sell some properties at specific times. Mm-hmm. Now, I can just hear some other advisors or people that say you should never sell mm. pull out their soapbox and want to challenge that part of the strategy. But once again, to each their own. And as a disclaimer, buying and selling properties, flipping properties, trading properties, whichever way you want to paint it up, is not for the lighthearted. No, it, that's an it, advanced strategy. It's an extremely advanced property because you need to actually buy it better than you do for a buy and hold property. Mm. If you're especially if you're going to trade it that's right earlier but you might buy a property and earmark that for 10 years time as a sell-off or secondary incomes duplexes yeah. strata titling a block of units that you bought whatever it may be there needs to be at one point in the strategy chunk deals mm. wads mm. of capital to extinguish potentially other debt at certain points of the strategy of your journey so that you can flush that un- unencumbered income potentially into another asset. Yeah. Yep. I guess what we're trying to say is that if you went down the conventional route and took into account the rhetoric of the yesteryears to say never ever sell, hold your debt long term, the value will far exceed the debt exposure, you're talking 30, 40 year strategies. If you wanted to condense that down and get to your fruits of labor earlier, there is a little bit of fuel burn along the way and the fuel burn is that yes you're selling down some of your assets when you sell down there is a tax event you need to talk to your accountant well before that event so that you're planning it and working within the rules to minimize what you need to pay out so that you can retain most of the profits and for those that are entertaining the idea of actually trading properties on a full-time basis just remember that's an income based model it's It's a job it's a job it's not a wealth based model because you can't renovate for the rest of your life you know there's injuries yep there's markets 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 change there's age and sometimes there's not just the opportunity and you would need to have four properties on the go at one time so you would need to be buying one renovating one 
marketing one and then settling one on the sales side of it just so you have consistency because it's a feast or famine Mm -hmm. strategy for us and a very very dangerous one so paying off the debt is a absolute critical part of the portfolio and sometimes you might just be opportunistic because i don't know you owned a good example is owning land out in the schofields area or the Mm -hmm. market gardeners back up there the zoning changed and overnight with a stroke of a pen yeah they were gazillionaires yep or Londonderry, all those likes that's for the Sydney siders that know where the area is. So now that we've established you need to pay off the debt, we've identified the area, we know how to identify the area. We believe there's some pretty good opportunities around the country at this point in time. We've talked about pipeline analysis, mm-hmm. and you actually you touched on something which is what we're talking about a lot, and that's the whole design of decade. That's right. So no, so do you just want to... Because we do get, we mentioned it probably three or four podcasts ago and then I think I wrote a blog about it and mm. the amount of questions that we get around, well, you kind of skimmed across it. What is actually design a decade? Can you explain it a little bit more? Absolutely. So it is moving away from your conventional approach of set and forget. You're actually dynamically managing your investments and you're doing it in 10-year trenches. The reason why you're doing it in 10-year trenches, it takes you probably three, four, perhaps five years to accumulate and then the balance of it is actually managing it and managing it into a progression of debt reduction. However it looks like to you, whether it is adding your dwellings, whether it is selling down some, or just simply you know, sitting still, not buying anymore, and letting the market do what it needs to. And all of this comes back to progressive planning. So as, as you add each property to the mix, you're coming back, realigning the entire cash flow, the intention to buy the next property and the intention to perhaps work on one of the properties already existing in the portfolio so that it's constantly pointing towards the goal that you originally aimed for. And from time to time, you'll have to pivot. Yeah, absolutely. To be depending on the market, depending on what's happening with your circumstances as well. Because they do change. Mm. They, no matter what it's anybody not, says, they do change. Yeah, that's right. So a lot of people come to us and, and they've done fancy spreadsheets. They've done you know, massive plans or it's almost like a financial plan or, or a large a thesis. corporation. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. If you can't explain your strategy, if you can't explain your goal on one page, it's not a goal. Yeah. And just to be clear though, that doesn't mean that you should actually do a little bit more analysis than yes, one one page, yes. but you just the, the overall is mm-hmm. here's my strategy. It's on one page, not the and back. And this is where I'm heading with it. Yeah, not the back of a beer coaster mm-hmm. because if you're doing a strategy at the pub, there's probably something, <laughs> something <laughs> wrong. <laughs> All right, so the designer decade, as we close out, for me is also about who you surround yourself with. Because Absolutely. And I'm not just talking about people like us as advisors and advocates, but your accountant, mm-hmm. I think, is clearly essential. And for me, a good accountant, I often get asked, well, how do I find a good accountant and what do they look like? Mm. And in short, clearly they need to, whoever you use needs to be doing what you want to do. I think that's a given. That's a must. So let's just tick that and park that aside. But I think they also need for an accountant and a broker and an advisor, an investment advisor, needs to be proactive rather than reactive. And what I mean by that, if you take an accountant as an example and you go to them at the end of the financial year and say, well, you know, we've, we've done all this, how are we going to fix it? Or as, as a property investor, that's the worst thing you can do. 100%. So you want to actually be there at the end of the financial year or whenever you go to see your accountant and say, right, we've got last year covered. Let's plan mm-hmm. for this year going forward so that we're not you know, in all sorts of trouble this time next year. Yeah. They're very hard to find. They need to be active. You need to have a great relationship. With any of your advisors, I think you need to gel with them. 
That's right. They could be awesome, but if you don't like them, it's just it's it's futile. Mm. Same thing with a broker. They're another integral part of your team because if you can't get finance, your strategy means nothing and nor That's does true. the vehicle because you can't get money to buy it. And, and here's a handy hint, right? So just because one broker has said you can't get finance, perhaps that they're you know looking at it from one viewpoint only and they haven't, either you've outgrown their skill set or they haven't looked at the bigger picture and therefore haven't cast their net wide enough to get you the right lender. And they need to be truthful yes. to you. Yes. So don't promise you, well, yeah, you can borrow a million dollars, no problems, well, mm. you know, giddy up, go to an auction or go get yourself into a contract. But I think truthful, so if we take an example from today where all over the internet you'll see two point something interest rates and you know, mid three interest rates all day, every day. Mm-hmm. But the broker needs to be truthful and you need to understand as a potential borrower that those types of loans are usually for double income, no kids, no debt. True. Right. So you own, owe or own nothing but this strong income then you're a potential better risk to the bank mm-hmm. and probably have to be at a, an 80% LVR. So don't believe everything you see. And the broker, a good broker, will be truthful to you saying you are not going to get 3.5%, Vic. Yep. You're a investor with that a couple of properties. Familiar. It does. <laughs> I said it deliberately. <laughs> it, um, you're at 4.5%. And, mm. and let's be real. A couple of years ago, we would have group hugged and high five at 4.5%. Absolutely, we would have. And now we're whinging and bitching and carrying on about yep. that it's too high and that's just a sign of the time. So clearly there's your advisor, there's your broker, there's your accountant, mm-hmm. and then it, you could flow all the way down through to property managers, tradesmen, and the like, mm. the whole way. But the one thing for me is non-negotiable, and that is you need to be active all the time. And I don't mean active purchasing. You need to be vested in your portfolio, whatever the asset vehicle looks like, so that your finger is on the pulse all the time. Managing so it. Managing it every single micro part of whatever that vehicle is. Because if you treat it passively, it'll turn around and bite you somewhere. And that means that you should be having regular reviews mm-hmm. by someone else so that they can dissect yep. the fresh, number. Fresh eyes on that. Fresh thing. eyes. So you don't have your, your blinkers on, That's true. so to speak. And not multiple opinions because multiple opinions can be dangerous mm. as well. Mm. So it's just someone who's on your journey. And that's it, right? So a lot of investors, especially when they're starting out the journey, they'll go to multiple advisors in inverted commas until they hear what they want to hear. Confirmational bias. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. and it happens because it's sexier, mm. it's shinier, mm-hmm. and potentially it's an instant win. That's true. So greed and ego kick in. There you go again. Once yeah. again. Well, I want to finish off because this is a question we get a lot as well, of that all sounded really good, but what's not the worst investment you've ever made? Because everybody knows what our worst investments are. We've been very public about that and mm-hmm. talked about it. And if you don't know what it is, just go back to one of our podcasts or read one of our, our blogs where we're quite open on the mistakes we've made along our journey and highlighting one. But what's the worst accident that you've ever had? As an Excellent. investor, so that I don't know, that could be a, I don't know, a car wreck, mm-hmm. or a painting error, or a something, because we're all hands on. Every investor yep. at one point or another is hands on. Yeah, yeah whether yeah. they paint a room or mow the lawn, mm-hmm. throw some wood chips out, whatever it may be. At one stage or another, very few investors are completely hand off somewhere in that journey. Yeah. Yep. Well, I'd probably pivot to one of my first forays of painting a property using an airless spray gun. So this was a property that was in the inner city. It was a duplex and I had seen this airless spray gun being used before. So I 
you know, masked up. I had the special suit on and decided, <laughs> and decided to paint. And I painted, you know, I painted everything except the property uh, at the end of that because <laughs> the um, light switches, the door handles, myself, and it was a horrible job. Did you get photos? Of you? I think I have got some photos of it. Yeah. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll you'll try, try and find, find those yeah, yeah. and we'll put them up on the website mm-hmm. to see, or the socials, <laughs> to see what that looks <laughs> like. Side to see. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever seen you lift a tool. No, no, I don't. You know, uh, expertise can be bought, as they say. What's your uh, worst one? I've had lots because I've been pretty much... You've been hand- on the tools. Yeah. yeah, I like being on the tools. Mm-hmm. And if I had the time today, I'd, I'd still be renovating, but I just, I don't have any time. But the worst I think I've had... The second worst I've ever had is I shot myself with my own nail gun, which was pretty stupid. <laughs> and I knew I was going to do it, but as all guys do, I said, no, it'll be right, and I shot myself. But I think the worst I've ever had was we – actually, it was something that we owned. You just weren't there because you're not on the tools. <laughs> so we bought a triplex. That's right. And we were renovating it, and we had a, an irate neighbour, and the neighbour was – is it goading? Goading us for many yeah, days yeah, beforehand. Yeah. He, he was mentally challenged. The neighbor yeah. was mentally yeah. challenged. And he was picking a fight with one of the guys on site. And I, I remember waking up in the morning at about three o'clock saying, I just need to get to this site because I, I just have a feeling. And I got there and I got there just in time. I was inside the premises and I was hearing all this screaming and commotion running on. And I, I walk outside to see one of our guys trying to stop this irate neighbor coming in through the builder's fence. And we had a guard dog or his pig dog. And the guy managed to open the fence and pulled out a knife and stabbed our guy mm. right across the – opened him up pretty bad. And he took off then. And so we called – there was three of us on site, so we called the ambulance. And then I said to the non-stab guy, get him in the car and just start driving toward an ambulance. And so there was two of us left on site. And the other guy took the guard dog and locked him up while I'm on the phone. So he's out the back now, nowhere to be seen. And the irate neighbour comes back with a, like a samurai, a machete, mm-hmm. and starts trying to you know, chop me up <laughs> into shishimi. And I'm on the phone to the police at the time saying, look, you, you probably better go quicker. Wherever you are, go quicker. Did you, Be- did you scream like a girl? No, no. No, I didn't. I was actually, I was proud of myself. I was quite, I was quite, I was quite calm because he was between me and one of the tradesmen, Ute, which there was a nail gun on the tailgate, not the same nail gun that shot me years earlier, but I thought if I could get to the nail gun, I'm in a better position than him with his machete, but I couldn't get to it. So I reached, I looked around and all I had was the end of one of those fiberglass cheap vacuum cleaners. Mm -hmm. So it ended up, he and I, him with the machete and me with the end of a vacuum cleaner having this sort of Star Wars lightsaber sword fight (laughs) while I'm on the phone to the police saying, you gotta go faster. But he, yeah, he was mentally challenged and turns out I lived. I didn't end up on a dinner plate and he went to jail for a very, very long time. So that's probably the worst thing that's happened to me and that mm-hmm. was quite unique. I told my wife like four days later. I didn't tell her straight, yeah. <laughs> straight away. She heard it from somebody else and that was no, another near-death experience then. So I've had some bad stuff, but that's mm-hmm. probably the worst. Mm. It's but that's because we invest quite prolifically and you know when you're that much involved you will get some stories like that but generally investing is fairly safe it's a safe sport yeah, it is safe sport <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it could be anything you could tip a bucket of paint on your head whatever it is yeah, oh, i'm right. sure everybody's everybody's got a story and if you do have one 
we would love to hear it. Absolutely. Send it to questions at rightpropertygroup.com.au. And of course, if you want to want us to talk about a particular topic as well, send it to the same email address as well. So this is something that we're going to do our best mm-hmm. to do regularly because once again, this is a, a unique opportunity for us, which we've enjoyed. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It's, yeah, it's something, it's it is something different. You know, we do this in the office as well from time to time, but this was good. So once, as Victor said, questions at Right Property Group, if you've got any subjects, any questions, any good stories, mm-hmm. and don't forget to listen to all the other podcasts and we will be here next time. See you then. See you then. The information featured in this podcast is general in nature, does not take into consideration your financial situation or individual needs and should not be relied upon. Before making any investment, insurance, tax, property or financial planning decision, you should consult a licensed professional who can advise whether your decision is appropriate for you.